Hello and welcome to Real REE Film Reviews. Today's podcast is a real mix of different films and I'm going to give you my bird's eye view of the most recent cinema releases. So I'll give you a non-plot spoiler review of some films shown recently in mainstream and independent or arthouse cinemas. Firstly, Sword Art Online Progressive Session of Deep Night, a Japanese anime uh, manga film. Next, Ennis Men, a Cornish folk horror tale. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, a bio-documentary, uh, as well as a documentary about the downfall of the Sackler family, and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. I'll give you my view of the films, its plot storylines, a uh, discussion about some things that happen in them, my pithy summary, and then a review rating. So let me know what you think. Uh, if you've never given any feedback or a comment before, just join in either through my Twitter account, R-E-E, Real Film, uh, Real Film A-C-O, for, uh, or Real Film Review on Instagram, or Real Film Review Plus on Face Group, Facebook group page. Um, or email me at realfilm at skiff.com. So, let's get into Sword Art Online Progressive, um, Shejo of Deep Night. It's not an easy title to come up with, so I'll just call it Sword Art. It's a Japanese anime manga, and it's about a group of players that are stuck inside a virtual game, making their way through the levels. Now, there are two main groups, or guilds as they call themselves in the film, with some independent fighters, and they're all trying to get to the boss room. There's the outline of the film. It's easy to follow. Um, I know nothing about these films, and building up a little bit more information, the more of them I see. They're not confusing. It's just a story with identifiable characters, and halfway through, you do find out that they could be killed in real life. So, that's despite what another reviewer, Phil Horde, has put... But I agree with him. It doesn't um, up the tension or, or make it any more drama or peril to the action. The thing about these films is that there is an underlying allegory, but I, th- I think it comes from the, the nice pace and the, uh, the uh, intentions of the actors uh, within the films or the characters within the films. Um, and the allegory here is that Karita, the, one of the main characters, works for himself but for the betterment of, of the whole. Um, he is a humble servant warrior, and what um, he and Asuna become closer through this. So there's a sort of little, and I, to say romantic, it is, but, but not in a way that it might be played in other films, because of the um, sort of respectful culture that these films are reflecting. So there's something charming, I think, about them. Um, they're mostly good people with a few dodgy characters and then they take on the evil. Um, in this film, it's it's all about taking on the characters within the virtual reality game. So I didn't not enjoy it. It's perfectly all right. There's lots of talking um, uh, and, and plot development and things become clear as the story unfolds in front of you. Now, I understand why a lot of uh, younger people, um, especially teenagers, and this is universal, not just sort of one um, uh, background or one part of the world uh, that this is popular with. I understand it. it's pretty universally popular. And there are many sort of degrees and layers behind all the characters from the TV series and the magazines and, and the other films that they've done. So there's a whole host of worlds 
that lie behind all the identifiable people and individual characters. And, and they are people with their different ways of looking at the world and their different characteristics and their different traits. You get the loner type quite a lot, or the one who doesn't want to quite be a part of the group, but doesn't want to be distinguished from the group. And the people who've got their own distinctive skills and traits. And that's that's easy to portray in these films. So um, life is reflected and confusing life. And, and people, well, I say people, young people, trying to make out the world um, is reflected in this prism of a film and, um, and all the people who play all the different parts. So... Um, I, I don't want that to sound patronising, but I, I can see why there is so much depth of uh, love for these films or fandom. I don't think it's love for the films. I think uh, a lot of followers of the films just like to delve into the depth of the characters. So my pithy summary would be virtual reality fighting for existence inside what might be a virtual game. My review rating... It, <laughs> It's mm, to meh, perfectly all right if if you want to pass some time. Um, it's for the fans, though, really, isn't it? So if you know you ain't going to like watching manga anime characters sorting out the levels and get into the boss room, then follow your nose. It might not be for you. Let's go on to Ennis Men. It's a rated 15. Here's the IMDb description of the film, because this is quite a hard one to describe. So I'm going to use theirs and then, and then say my thoughts on this summary. Set in 1973 on an uninhabited island off the Cornish coast, a wildlife volunteer's daily observations of a rare flower turn into a metaphysical journey that forces her, as well as the viewer, to question what is real and what is nightmare. Now... This is the difficult thing about reviewing this film. It's not because it's a difficult film. Um, It's a complex film. It's difficult to pin down. It's well worth reading Mark Kermode's and Peter Bradshaw's reviews. I think they're in The Guardian online. And they give a little bit more about the background, about the director, about things in the film. um, To help you, because I'm not going to do a very good job of this one, I think. But... What I will say is there are quite a few themes and, for want of a better word, devices and build-ups that are used in the film. Now, it, it's set in 1973 and she's a volunteer on an island and it's just about her, almost, with everything revolving around her. And the one thing that sticks out is that there is just so little that she's got in comparison to what we have now. So she puts her daily observations in a logbook with a pencil. She's reading a book. There is the fuel generator for electricity uh, and and just a few other items at the radio for keeping in contact. Um, The oven for heating up a kettle for a tea. There really isn't much. And I'm describing everything there because that's all of the things that are in the film. That's all of the props that are used. She doesn't have um, superfluous things around her. She doesn't have an endless flow of communication with a little rectangle box. Now, the thing about the film, is it a horror? Well, it's the closest main genre, I suppose. Um, It's like a psychological burner, I would say. And I'm not going to take issue with the IMDb description above, but I'm going to say that um, it, it says the observations of a rare flower turn into a metaphysical journey. Well, you know, it forced her to question what is real, what is nightmare. 
that's one interpretation. So that's what's enjoyable, I think, about this film. Uh, immediately upon looking at reviews of this film and reading that description, I thought, well, that's not how I saw it. And I think, I don't know if this is the intention of the filmmaker, but it's certainly when you sat there in the cinema, and I was uh, I was in a small cinema this for this one, but that it was almost packed out. You could tell everybody was thinking and thinking and thinking, what is going on here? Not in a bad way, but trying to work out their own interpretation. And it's perfectly set up for that. Um, the film emits red spots. It, it's it's shot in 16mm, which I understand is the old style film, and, and home developed it. It has this feel um, of flickering onto your screen like films used to, not being projected on digitally. And, and it's not fake. Uh, uh, there's repetition is used and the build-up of the main historical event that happened on the island's past, um, when it did have a working mind. And it, it continually raises questions in you about the plot or the storyline or the character or what is going on or about the things that are used in the film, about the number of things, about how things weave together, how they're all interpreted, how they're all interlinked. And some of the questions that I found myself, and I did find some bits of it were too repetitious, but are we trapped in habit? Doing the same thing over and over again um, with literally no change. Or there is a discernible change, but it's no change. Um, where do recollections, uh, and, and this is the thing, stop being recollections. She's, she's on an island, and, and you, here, here's the thing about um, threes, isn't it? You, you, you don't go for three seconds without a thought. I, I'm not quite sure about that one. You can't live for three minutes without oxygen. You can't live for three days without water. You can't live for three days without food. And the last one is you can't live without going mad for three months without company. So here she is on the island by herself. There is radio contact, but that becomes, well, mixed up, uh, along with a lot of other things about the island's past and her own past as well, and how things start affecting each other, how some things maybe have an influence on other things that are seemingly unconnected or are directly related. And so another question was, when do memories from the past become the present? Uh, and isn't it, I say it's interesting, this is the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. People think that looking at time is, is an easy thing to work out because, well, it just moves on. And, and there we are. One second is the same as one second at any time in any point. And there is a future and there is the past and here is the present. But when you start delving into this, I think the ancient Greeks, um, I can't remember who it was. Was it Plotinus who said that there is no future and there is no past? They're all things that, that haven't happened yet or have happened and so have gone. And so there is no such thing as time in the past. It's gone. The only thing is the here and now. But as soon as you have the here and now, it's gone. And these are deep psychological questions that do um, intrigue people. It's like um, sword art. I think one of the things that... Just below the surface, the, the, the Japanese manga anime uh, film that I've just previewed, uh, reviewed, 
One of the things that I think interests teenagers and younger people about this film is the whole idea of existence within existence. Um, and it's the, it's the matrix question, which always uh, seems to, uh, I say always, in my experience, it seems to capture people. How do we know we're not living in a constructed, uh, um, quote, reality? How do we know that this isn't all a dream? And this isn't just made up for the matrix. The reason why this runs deep is it, well, I mean, it goes back to, uh, and not initially, but one um, outright exponent of this is Descartes. Um, with his meditations but it's not used how you think but it certainly does capture people's imaginations he's trying to establish how do we know what is real so could we be confused with our dreams could we actually all be in a dream and it's part of his as as well as saying um, could we be controlled, all being controlled by a malicious evil demon who makes it seem that two and two equals four, and in fact, a two and two equals five. And what he's doing is not saying, oh, we're living in a, in a matrix. We are uh, living in a dream and we don't know it. What he's using is philosophical scepticism to say, well, what can we know? Because if we can cast out on all this, how do we know it is real? But the thing about all that and the thing about time when you look at it from a philosophical perspective not just a scientific sort of factual perspective is what is it really and these are questions that do fascinate people and they seem to echo through good pieces of work and good pieces of art so um, getting back to the uh, getting back to Ennis Man it's genuinely eerie um, like I said before, the sound emits from the front and, and it's used not over the top, the, the generator and the noise that makes. Um, but there, like I said, there are a few things at times. There is too much reposition going over the same thing I felt. Um, I won't give an example because I'd, I'd like you to watch it if you're interested in, in it. But without a further build-up of tension, I, I maybe I missed that. And so there were at times when... I'm not going to say I was struggling, but and I wasn't being impatient, but I wanted a little bit more. Um, but maybe I wasn't thinking things through as much as I should have been. But saying that, I think the trailer it has got it right. It is a film like no other you will have seen, I seem to remember as a tagline. Um, but the trailer is not indicative of the style throughout. So I thought it was going to be sort of quite fast and pacey. And it's not, but, but it's different and stylishly so. And almost there's a contempt for modern narratives that you find in other films. And, and I mean that in a very, very good way. It will stick with you if, if you like film. Um, is, my, is my criticism too harsh here? Is this enough of a film to be a film non-film goers would go and see and like? And my answer to that is maybe, but I'm not sure. Um, but if you see a lot of films, this is like having a fabulous fish and chips from a local, not glamorous, fish and chip shop. When you've been used to dining out at expensive restaurants and tasting the same old rich food with no real flavour. Pithy summary. Uh, no woman is an island. No island is a woman. 
my review rating. I'm going to have to qualify it because it is so different. Yay, if you want something different. Maybe if you think typical Hollywood is a bit boring and you want to watch something a bit different, but you may not appreciate it. I don't know. Uh, nay, if you like films like The Hangover or Babylon. So I want to go on to All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Um, rating 18, and deservedly so. Take note. It follows the life of artist and, uh, and photographer Nan Golding and the downfall of the Sackler family. Now, I watched this with just a few ideas of what it was about. Well, it turns out I didn't really have a clue. Um, it's a no-holds-barred bio-documentary primarily of Nan Golding's life and her art, uh, along with her most recent, uh, quotation marks, work, the downfall of this huge um, pharmaceutical uh, group with the head family, the Sacklers, who profited highly from the sale of opioid products they marketed and allowed to skyrocket in the US. Now, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of the opioid crisis in the US. There's quite a few documentaries, especially on BBC iPlayer, so easily accessible, documenting many angles to this. Um, also, this is not what all the beauty in the bloodshed does. It shows you a little bit of that. It's like a stone that sort of skims every now and then onto what is seen as the main story. But what I saw, and, and, and I, was ex I don't know what I was expecting. I was prepared for it. But be prepared if you do go and see this. Because although the details of Nan's life, and she goes quite early back to her childhood, and, and, and although they are painful, and they're painful to watch, they're painful for her, they're absolutely personal. Um, she never presents herself, or all the people in the film who are in her action group in uh, taking action against the Sacklers, or in the protest, she never portrays anyone as, as a victim. And she never portrays herself as a victim. Doesn't even come close. Now, why do I feel compelled to say that? Because if you're describing this film, you, you might think it's a, a misery memoir. It is not. It is very far from that. I mean, very briefly, her older sister and parents had a difficult relationship. And Nan's escape was through photography. And she ebbs and flows after she leaves home on a tide of bohemianism and activism, and she's sort of on the on the periphery, then right in the middle of the, what can be called the scene of a gay, lesbian, trans uh, artists, bohemians, and all different people in New York throughout the late 60s, 70s, and 80s. And in the film, she reproduces some of her slideshows um, that she made during her career. And, and there's just fascinating characters and her explanations on top. Um, there's a great bit where the curator who initially um, uh, uh, took on some of her work when he first saw her work um, because she was taking photographs in a style and of people that no one else was doing at that time. Because it's a tough watch on many levels. It's, like I say, intensely personal. It invades, and, and she does this, her own privacy. And she unearths within herself things she has not been able to sort out and reconcile, I, I would say. Um, 
although it's it's not navel gazing in any way it's gritty be prepared there are sexualized images images showing some tough scenes uh, domestic abuse violence but overall i came out it's it's a story of triumph not much really about the demos there's little bits and the action that was taken to remove the Sackler family from, in Nan's words, or in the group's words, from whitewashing themselves in art museums throughout the world, whitewashing themselves of the guilt for when they pushed this uh, product, OxyContin, knowing that sales of it would, would absolutely uh, go wild, producing them um, a lot, a lot of money. And, uh, and there's, one, there's one bit that, that tells you all you need to know about OxyContin, I, I would say, and, and, and I know one example doesn't prove, but there's one parent who speaks and he says about her son, who was a high school um, a sportsman who injured his leg and got prescribed um, some painkillers and took them absolutely how he should do. And they were OxyContin and he became hooked and uh, eventually led to the loss of his life. There was something reprehensible. But the film doesn't focus on that. It's about Nan as a photographer and as an artist who's put her work in museums around the world, knowing that they've been sponsored by this family that have caused misery, in her opinion, to loads. And so she takes them on in the only way that she can, I suppose, which is here she shows her life. That's it. There's, there's nothing they can come back and, and try and take her down with. And I, I get the sense that she's done this so that she can show, look, I ain't nobody's victim, but there's nothing here you're going to be able to use against me and, and, and bring down my argument. It is, although it's personal for her and she wants them out of the space that, 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 that she's made a life in because they're whitewashing their guilt. She takes them on her own game. So the, the stunts that they pull are, are, are so different to today's, uh, I say today's, you know, most recent times where people have gone in and ruined uh, art in, in a demonstration that's not connected to a museum. Here it's connected to the museum and, and people joined in. There's some film of it and some, some nice detention stuff where they're getting ready to go in and they're wondering if they're going to be uh, recognised in the museums and then they throw prescription bottles and prescription notes with the, the note that the Sackler family knew that the, the sales of OxyContin would go through the roof and they'd make a lot of money being hurled everywhere and banners and people join in. It's a good film. Here's the pithy summary. Biodoc of Nan Golden's life and her fight to get pharmaceutical millionaires out of art museums. My review rating. It's, it's all right. If you like films, it's, it's good. It's, it's a yay, a don't miss. If I'm not saying if you can stomach it, but I just it won't be for everyone. There won't be many stories told like this with this much detail, insight, um, and 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 such little lack and such a lack of navel gazing, and that's that's a really good thing. It's a tough watch. It goes a bit loose sometimes. But there's so much to get your head round. And in a way, you can understand um, that she has started her story. And it's almost that she, she does need to sort of fill in some of the gaps as well. So lastly, let's come to Puss in Boots, the last I wish. When Puss 
In Boots discovers that his passion for adventure has taken its toll and he has burned through eight of his nine lives, he launches an epic journey to restore them by finding the mythical last wish. So, DreamWorks animation, do I need to explain it anymore? Puss goes into some sort of retirement. There's a whole host of characters. There's a chihuahua dog that uh, pretends it's a cat. There's Kitty Softpaws, who um, Puss and Kitty have history. There's Goldilocks and the Three Bears. All these characters work. There's the, the evil little Jack Horner, though he's no longer little. That's my pathetic attempt at doing his voice. Um, they just they just look great. Uh, and Jack Horner is it's got this tiny head. It looks like a, an animation spitting image puppet of Boris Johnson with purple hair. And then this huge body in hands. And it's just laughably evil, but in a great way. Com- comedically evil, not, not laughably. Um, the voices and the accents throughout... They just work. They get everything right for a British audience. You know, the the three bears all talking like that. It works. Um, it, they don't get it wrong. The voices that people have, uh, just the little things throughout. The dialogue is funny. Um, uh, Puss is is bewildered by therapy therapy dogs. Oh, what is he talking about? Fairy tales and nursery rhymes are used really well, not only creatively, but intuitively used in a way that that just fits in. The plot, it, it, it moves on quickly. The character development, the underlying um, um, things that have gone on, the bringing together, you see the motives of the characters, and you know that uh, as an adult you're watching it, maybe maybe kids won't see this, but it, it's going to be entertaining. It's going to be good. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to like it, but it's absolutely one for anyone to watch. I loved it. It, it was stupid. It was funny. It was um, clever but without being knowingly so. It was well put together. Together. There were good things that come out of it. There were themes. There's the main theme of the loyalty stroke stupidity of a companion. And when that actually is, is all that you need. And that, there's one scene where rather than fighting and swashbuckling the way through, all you need to do is... And this is not being modern because the film with, with uh, Puss saying, what is he talking about? With the therapy dogs. Um, it's not being knowingly modern. It's just referencing it. But yet, the way to get through this uh, difficult obstacle was not to swashbuckingly fight through it. It was just to stand back and take your time and enjoy life a little bit. But it was only the once. There was loads of action, loads of stupidness, loads of gags, loads of just funny one-liners. That was weird. And just things that just great. I... Absolutely loved it. I've seen it twice already. I made sure I took my grown-up daughter back to see it. Um, Puss's expressions throughout are, are just adorable. Um, if you like cats, but I'd tell me if you if you don't like cats, but you still find his expressions work. I don't know. The recourse to being a cat sometimes with both him and Kitty and the cats in the retirement home. The scrabbing and the meowing within ten. Um. 
I just laughed all the way through. I was laughing too much. I had to calm myself down, really. Um, <laughs> um, I, I loved it. Pithy summary. Ginger Cat makes everyone's wishes come true. Review rating. Yay! Yay! Without shadow of a doubt. It's fun. It's silly. It's a great story. Surely you can enjoy this. So I'm going to put my films this week in order. Uh, Puss in Boots, Last Wish. I missed the opportunity to say, Puss in Boots, uh, Last Wish. It's at the top. Just go and see it. Waste your money. Just frivolously. Just you'll want to see it again. Stay in and watch the next one. Uh, definitely in number two, joint second, if you want to see something different, both of these films, Ennis Man and All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, um, if you want to experience non-Hollywood, non-scripted, and when I say non-scripted, I mean non-corny, cliche, stereotype scripted, um, they come joint second. Uh, Sword Art, I'm not going to diss it. Um, also from last week or this week, and my other podcast, uh, I'd put uh, The Fablemans and playing at Joint joint One. Uh, the Fablemans is nice. You want to go see a nice film with a nice story. And I, I don't mean nice in its bleh, sense. I mean, it's good. You, you know, it's crafted well. You're going to like it. But if you want to blow them up a little bit, then go and see playing. If you have to, knock at the cabin, babble off. Just don't. So coming up, um, I will be reviewing later on this week um, a Korean 2020 uh, romantic mystery film produced and co-directed by Park Chan-wook called Decision to Leave. Uh, It's about a detective in Korea who becomes um, not obsessed with the case, but a man falls off the top of a mountain and he's sort of clearing up the bits. Um, I'm going to see Titanic 3D in IDLX with water and vapour and and scent and all these things. Tonight, I'll review that. Coming up also is Magic Mike's Last Dance and lastly, The Sun. So thanks for joining me. Love to hear from you. Um, uh, Go to social media, Real Film at Real Film ACO on Twitter, Real Film Review on Instagram or my Facebook page, Real Film Review Plus. I'd love to hear from you.